Benedicite. Hello guys, this is Elijah. And today we're gonna be talking about ontology. So without further ado, let's, you know, define what ontology is. Ontology is a branch of philosophy that would ask the question, what does it mean to be a human being? Now, not just that though ontology would ask what does it mean to be a thing at all what is existence what does it mean for something to be at what point does something exist versus not exist for example let's say one day you went down to the petting zoo you met a goat there and you fed you fed it some alfalfa pellets. Now, there's a lot of people out there that would look at that goat and they would take the existence of that goat to be a self-evident thing. It exists. And for the sake of the discussion today, let's just say fine. The goat definitely exists. It is. But then ontology steps in. What does it even mean to exist? What do we mean when we say that something exists? What criteria do we use to validate one's existence? This leads to other questions like what is the nature of existence itself? It exists, is existence a property of that goat? This leaves even more questions. Like, what foundation, if therein is one, makes it possible for that goat to exist in the first place? There are examples of common ontological questions, but even this is far from the end of ontology. Like, how about this? What if you leave a petting zoo and later on you're thinking about that goat? You know, what if you really like thinking about that goat and if you fell in love with this goat and now gosh darn it you're daydreaming about it all the time no matter what you do you can't get that goat out of your head now would you say that that thought about that goat exists when you're no longer having the thought does it not exist anymore you know are thoughts just patterns, you know, fleeting electron, electrochemical activity? Or do, the, or do thoughts exist as beings in the same way that goat is a being or a rock is a being? I mean, think about it. What really is the difference between that thought and that goat? You may say, okay, well, they're different to me because... I know once just a thought and that it's not real. Okay, well, what if you took PCP and you hallucinated that you and that goat ran off to Vegas together to get married and you're walking down the aisle with that goat and it feels as real to you in that moment as it did back on the petting zoo? Question is... When you eventually stop hallucinating 
and you're hearkening back to your memory of your honeymoon in Guam with your new goat companion, can that whole experience be said to have existed in some existed in some capacity? We've all been here before. Not the goat. We've all been up in our heads asking these questions about what constitutes something existing or not. And philosophers all throughout history have been here as well in this field of uh, ontology. Now, there's definitely of you out there that hear these sorts of questions being asked and they just don't really do much for you. Look, I love learning about the existentialist and their approach to life. Uh, I love learning about Nicomachean ethics. That's interesting. But ultimately, I like learning about philosophy that's actually going to enrich things in my life. What possible benefit can I get from waxing poetic about whether this hypothetical goat exists or not? Look, personally, it's this weird thing about me. I like to learn about stuff that's going, uh, that's actually going to be important to me. Well, the guy we're going to be talking about today thought that these ontological questions are not only important, they are the most important and simultaneously the most neglected questions in the human history of philosophy. His name is Martin Heidegger. And for me to explain to you why he thinks these questions are so important, uh, it's going to take an entire series, but uh, I promise you, by the end of it, you won't just have these obscure questions to think about. Uh, You'll have an approach to life that he lays out that some consider to be the greatest existentialist approach to life ever produced but the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step question is where do you put that foot first it makes sense to me to begin where heidegger began at the beginning of his career because to uh, understand where he he's coming from with all these innovations in the area of ontology we have to understand the revolutionary method that was invented by his teacher. A guy that couldn't care less about ontology. And his name was Edmund Husserl. Or Husserl, if you prefer it that way. And his le- Edmund Husserl and his revolutionary method that he invented was called phenomenology. I mean, we've tackled this on senior high school, but we've never really uh, gotten into it. I mean, who will totally get into it, right? You know, Husserl was a mad scientist. This mad scientist that emerges at the beginning of the 20th century, just wrecking havoc on everything in philosophy. I guess technically that makes him a mad philosopher. But make no mistake, and don't get me wrong, he is two philosophy and traditional philosophers. What a mad scientist would be, a science and traditional scientists. He's like a mad scientist because 
yes, he still get dressed up in a lab coat. He still conducts experiments, but they're not the same kinds of experiments that a traditional scientist would conduct or would do. He's conducting these experiments in these bizarre place deep within his own mind, almost like his own personal underground lair, or in today's lingo, it's a man cave. And I guess most of all, he's not doing these experiments for the same reasons a normal scientist would be going them. Uh, one would, one of the things I love about Edmund Husserl, uh, just as a uh, character within philosophy, is the way he approaches his work. He's not concerned with things like what is the meaning of my life or how we should be behaving or what the best form of government is. No, 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 no. Husserl is the is a mathematician turned philosopher. So a mathematician first and then a philosopher. And while he thinks ultimately his work is gonna go on to give answers with these kinds of questions, he's personally interested in one thing and one thing alone in his work. Certainty. Certainty. See, Husserl noticed something. He noticed all these philosophers throughout history trying to find a way to get objective truth about things. Yeah, how's that going for you guys? I haven't checked in a while. Uh, how are you guys doing over there? How are you? Kumusta? Como estas? He realized that they all have basically the same strategy for doing this. Uh, he's talking. I am talking about the philosophers before. They all come up with their own unique, creative ways of looking at the world in a slightly different way than the last guy did. The goal being to correct the assumptions of the past and get us a little bit closer and, I mean, more close to certainty but maybe their lack of success can can be explained by the fact that their strategy for accomplishing these massive tasks has been wrong from the very beginning so maybe instead of looking at the world differently we should be looking differently at the way that we look at the world here's where he's coming from do you remember Immanuel Kant? Do you remember David Hume? Remember talking about how we get up, how we get to our human experience of the world? The senses pick up a flurry and seemingly random raw phenomena that by themselves would be pretty chaotic. But we filter those fen through various mental faculties, categories of the mind that helps us categorize and make sense of them things like space time cause and effect and uh, many others this is what uh, make up our subjective human experience well one thing's for sure if you are Husserl if we ever arrived at something method that does not give us objective truth about things it is ultimately going to have to be filtered through this very narrow subjective human experience that we have 
Husserl's method of phenomenology is not about looking at the world differently. It's not about looking at the world at all, necessarily. It's, it is about talking an exhaustively close look at the lens of these objects as our experience are always seen through human consciousness or our subjective experience of the world. Phenomenology is a method designed to be better to better understand the underlying structure of human thought. The hoping that we can one day not just merely have an understanding of these objects and our thinking that we typically call the world. The strategy of so many philosophers before him, but instead maybe we can arrive at the certainty about these raw phenomena and how they can relate to each other by understanding all uh, all the ways that our human experience of the world distorts reality. In other words, all these philosophers over the years have tried to arrive at objectivity by sitting on the sidelines, approaching it like they are some objective third part third party looking at the world but human experience is not objective here's Husserl saying that you're never going to be able to arrive at certainty about anything unless you have a much deeper understanding of the subjective lens that you're looking at everything through the big the big maxim here that I like to underscore the question central to phenomenology that's going to help us understand what Heidegger did, what he did is the question, is it possible that we are so familiar with this daily process of just perceiving the world that that familiarity is clouding our ability to see the world clearly? Now, Thinking about the possibility is not really default state we find ourselves in. It's not really a default state we find ourselves in as human beings, right? I mean, most of us don't sit around thinking, sit around thinking about the underlying structure of human thought. We just think about stuff. We just think. We just think. Most of us are in searching for the objective truth about things, like philosopher would. That's okay. Uh, I mean, not all of us are born philosophers. We just sort of have beliefs. If they work, eh, they work. If they don't, well, what really happens as a consequence of them not working? What you go into thinking closet and turn off all the lights. Stupid, stupid, stupid. And then, what happens? You emerge from the closet and revise your beliefs into another flawed interpretation of the world and go on about your life until you have to revise them again. This whole idea of just sort of blindly accepting from birth that there's this other world out there separate from us that it's our job to undercover the truth about the world by reading more books and having more conversations and many other base assumptions that go along with this deeply flawed attitude that uh, we seem to have 
uh, of taking so many things for granted. This whole approach is what Husserl, uh, Husserl refers to ha- as the natural attitude. It's already 16 mi- minutes and uh, I think uh, it's good for the part one.